<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a half-hour conversation with Dr. Keisha N. Blaine, uh, Conversations with Great Minds. She's the author of a new book, Until I Am Free, Betty Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. And it's a, uh, it's a remarkable book. And I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. One quick note here, both Prince William and Captain Kirk have spoken. William Shatner, who's a Canadian citizen, by the way, which, uh, you know, so probably they're beating him up for that over on right-wing sites right now. I could just imagine what the right-wing talk radio guys are going. This is amazing. William Shatner, he says, I wish I had better news and more entertainment and jokes to tell you, but I was moved to tears by what I saw in outer space. He said, I came back filled and overwhelmed with sadness and empathy for this beautiful thing we call Earth. We're at the tipping point. We haven't got time to wait 30 years and argue about a few billion dollars. Burying your head in the sand another instant about global warming and the destruction of the planet is suicide for us all. And then Prince William, you know, the son of Diana and Prince Charles, came out. He says the, uh, something very similar. He said, we need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair the planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live. He is now 39 years old. Boy, how rapidly they grow up. And William Shatner adds, the fragility of this planet, the coming catastrophic event, we all need to clean this act up now. Amen. But to start out, senior fellow at the Century Foundation, formerly with the Center for American Progress, where she helped build the Poverty Prosperity Program, and the host of the Off Kilter Show and Podcast, our Twitter handle, Rebecca Vallis, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-V-A-L-L-A-S, or at Off Kilter Show. Rebecca, uh, it's great talking with you again. It's been quite a while. Tell us about the demand, I guess is the appropriate word, that if we're going to give a child tax credit, a, a break basically to young families who are raising children, that we're going to, I guess this isn't means testing, have a work requirement attached to it? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Tom. And it's it's a pleasure to be back on the show. And it has been a minute, although I feel like I've lost all sense of time in COVID. Uh, but you're exactly right. Here we are right now, four months into the expanded child tax credit, something that many of us have been calling a, a child allowance, which is uh, akin to a policy that, that most other developed nations have. This is a policy that is estimated to cut child poverty in the U.S. by half 
in the next year. And it, it was a part of, it was one of the big and, and kind of most well-known parts of the American Rescue Plan Act that was signed into law in March of this year, expanding the child tax credit in, in really substantial ways. And we're in, in a place now where four months into this policy, we're seeing that kids and families' lives are already being dramatically changed for the better. Hunger cut by a third, according to um, census data that gives us a snapshot of what's going on with families. But, but now, in the context of a debate around whether and for how long to extend that expanded child allowance, because Biden signed into law um, an authorization for this policy to exist for just one year, now now we're at a point where the senator from from West Virginia, who I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with because he has been really standing in the way of a lot of Biden's agenda at, at this point in the context of what's called Build Back Better. Joe Manchin from West Virginia is single-handedly jeopardizing the future of that new child allowance by demanding that it include so-called work requirements as a condition for its extension beyond that first year. And we can get into why this is just a, a terrible idea, but it's unfortunately taking us back in time in some ways and rolling the clock back to what feels like a, a, a 1980s, 1990s era debate, and, and yet um, unfortunately playing out in, in 2021. This is a game that conservatives have played with so-called entitlement programs forever. I mean, they, they're uh, throughout my life, time anyway, and that's a pretty long time. Um, but certainly it really hit its, its stride in the 1980s with Reaganism. I mean, they tried to say Social Security should be means tested. Why, why are billionaires getting Social Security checks? The reason, of course, why is because if everybody's in, everybody's in, and it's less expensive to administer, frankly, and, you know, and it works well. And, and I'm sure you have things to add to that, why it's, you know, why it's a good thing. But they, they keep, and, and, and the strategy here, at least my understanding of it, and I'd love to get your take on this, Rebecca Vallis, is, is number one, turn it from essentially an entitlement, and I realize that's an old slur from the 80s, but I don't have a better word for it. Turn it from a program that everybody is eligible for into something that only people in a certain category, basically low income or gee, they're working or whatever, but you convert it from a program, from a, from a widespread program into a, into a somewhat narrower program. And then you have the precedent set for chipping away at it and chipping away at it. And now you can start to call it a welfare program. And pretty soon it's only available to people who are, you know, in a very, you know, in a very narrow spectrum. And then you make it harder and harder for them to sign up for it or get, a, get access to it. And we've seen this over and over again with everything from from food stamps, I mean, it's just right across the board. Anything that is a benefit to people, this is their strategy. Do I have this right? You've got it right, Tom, as you usually do. And I'll say that, you know, of all of the different conservative strategies, right, which are, are not new, this is not a new idea, and we can talk about where it comes from, um, but all the conservative strategies out there over the years to, to shrink effective programs, to make programs really hard to access, and to demonize the people who turn to them, um, in, in many ways, the, the policy that is often called work requirements, I hate calling it that because it's really actually work reporting requirements, it's, it's, it's forced labor. 
labor. There's a lot of different names for it. Um, it's actually, in many ways, the most nefarious. Um, uh, so it's this is not a new idea. Um, uh, so-called work requirements, the policy of using survival benefits as a tool to compel paid and usually very low-wage underpaid work outside the home. It's not a new idea. In fact, folks who listen to your show, watch your show, are probably very familiar that uh, work reporting requirements were the centerpiece of, of Donald Trump's agenda to dismantle the safety net for the better part of his, his one-term presidency, including not only harsher uh, limits on SNAP, food assistance uh, for jobless workers, but also an immeasurably cruel policy that stripped health insurance away um, from unemployed workers through Medicaid. Uh, both of those policies have thankfully been rolled back since uh, by the courts and, and by the Biden administration. But you mentioned that, that there's there's a lot uh, 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 more history than even just uh, what comes from the Trump era. And even a lot farther back than, than even Ronald Reagan's racist myth of the of the welfare queen. So um, and work. in fact, a, a a recent report from the Center for the Study of Social Policy um, is actually incredibly valuable on this. And we did a whole episode of Off Kilter, the podcast and radio show that I host about poverty, inequality, and everything they intersect with. Uh, we, we did a whole episode last week on this, the racist roots of, of work requirements. It was something of an open letter to Joe Manchin. Um, the Center for the Study of Social Policy, who is featured in that episode, um, has documented in painstaking depth that, that work requirements have have a long and assorted history in, in U.S. public policy. Um, and in fact, they date all the way back to slavery. So let's be very clear here. Requiring people to work in exchange for basic supports is it's founded on the idea that people don't want to work um, and, and, and that they're, therefore they need to be coerced to work by public policy. And this is an idea that is rooted in a very old racial racist myth that was originally developed by white enslavers to justify the forced labor of, of black people from Africa um, who, who were enslaved um, uh, for, for white people to profit from. Um, and so that's the original origins of, of work requirements in their most literal sense. But since the formal end of slavery, work requirements have consistently been used to coerce and to exploit and to devalue black people's labor. And that's, of course, despite the fact that black people have always participated in the U.S. labor force at, at high rates. And in, in many cases, especially in the case of black women, um, at higher rates than, than their white counterparts. But that is that's the, the long view history of this policy that, that we're talking about right now and that we're unfortunately in the middle of yet another debate around. And while this moment is an opportunity to try to turn the page on that history, unfortunately, that senator from from West Virginia is is not interested in, in turning that page. It seems it's pretty mind boggling. So so the key to the whole thing, it's it's kind of like Hobbes versus Rousseau. You know, it's it's like are are we uh, intrinsically good people or intrinsically evil people? Are we intrinsically people who who uh, you know like to have a work and a mission and and something to do all day, or are we people who just like to sit around on the couch and and uh, you know. Uh, drink Jim Beam and watch uh, soap operas and, and eat bonbons or something. It's a, uh, is there any research on what percentage of people actually don't want to work? I mean, the, 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 the lazy fee. I'm guessing it's probably between 1% and 3% of the population that, that are, are just like miswired somehow or traumatized or whatever 
you know, setting aside people who are, you know, physically disabled, things like that. Well, in fact, actually looking at the child tax credit in particular, which is where Joe Manchin is is targeting his proposal, right? He's saying he wants to add these uh, work reporting requirements to the child tax credit, a program that's about ensuring that all children have what it takes to thrive. Um, uh, it's not a not a program for forced labor for parents, but that's what he wants to turn it into. Um, the, if you actually look at the child tax credit specifically, what you see is that, according to the Treasury Department, ninety. 7% of families benefiting from the child tax credit um, in, its, in its current and expanded form um, are working either in some kind of job outside the home or in self-employment. Um, and so 97%, right, that's that's where we are. And yet Joe Manchin's uh, quote here, right, when he was initially saying that this was going to be his demand as a condition for allowing kids to continue to benefit from this incredibly important and successful policy, he said on CBS on one of the Sunday shows, don't you think, I'm quoting here, don't you think if we're going to help the children that people should make some effort? And it's, it's sort of mind-boggling when you, you think about that kind of a, a comment, given that it, it, it fundamentally devalues the unpaid work that parents do in raising and caring for their children. And this was a yeah. point that Senator Sherrod Brown, a longtime champion for the child tax credit, made when he was asked what he thought of Manchin's comments. Uh, Jared Brown said, well, I think raising children is work. And, you know, the man's got a point. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely does. And a, and a good one and one that needs to be echoed over and over and over again. Rebecca Vallis, Senior Fellow of the Century Foundation. TCF.org is the website. Twitter handle Rebecca Vallis, V-A-L-L-A-S, R-E-B-E-C-C-A, Vallis. Uh, Rebecca, thanks so much for dropping by. Oh, and, and the podcast, Off Kilter Show and Podcast, available wherever fine podcasts are available, I'm assuming, Rebecca? They are. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your pods, and, and you can You're find lots more about Tom this Hartman. on last week's Visit show. Okay. Thank you very much, Rebecca Vallis. We'll be right back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. About mansion and cinema. Mm-hmm. They are out to destroy Biden's entire agenda, and I think they'll be successful. Well, you know, the strategy that these giant corporations and right-wing billionaires use is they don't try to buy an entire party. That's, that's a waste of money. They're very strategic. They buy just enough legislators to be able to block things from happening that they don't want. It's yeah. just that simple, and that's what they've done here. Yeah, that isn't why I called, though. I called about the uh, voter suppression. Mm -hmm. uh, with these Republicans uh, in the legislators that are making these uh, voter suppression laws mm -hmm. and are undermining our ability to even have our vote counted, also with the Senate saying that they aren't going to vote any on any voter suppression laws, and they won't pass the even man— I bet they don't pass Manchin's uh, voter uh, law. And if they don't, and it's legal what they're doing in these uh, legislators, legislatures, what will happen? Will we be able to stop them from stealing our ability to vote in the future? Uh, you know, very much like they don't try to buy all the politicians. They just buy enough to, to bust things up and, and prevent things from happening. Um, they're doing the same thing very strategically with uh, majority black counties around the United States. Wayne County, which is where Detroit is, and Michigan, 
I believe it's Milwaukee County in Wisconsin, uh, Harris County in Texas, which is where Houston is, Maricopa County in Arizona, this is the one that they audited. And in these counties, they're replacing election officials with Republican operatives who are Trumpy, who, who uh, you know, are, are willing to toe the, the fascist line. Right. Um, I, in answer to your question, Carol, specifically, will they get away with it? Can they pull this off? I don't know. We're going to have to watch. We're going to have to keep an eye on this. I, there, are, there are some significant forces pushing back on them, including a lot of former Republicans, you know, people like Steve Schmidt, Nicole Wallace, and, and you know, the whole, the whole bunch over at the Lincoln Project, and Nicole Wallace on MSNBC, uh, yeah. and Joe Scarborough now on MSNBC. These are all yeah. Republicans or former Republicans who are pushing back. But, you know, the question is, will they, will they succeed? Will, you know, or are these guys going to succeed in basically overturning democracy in the United States? I am very worried. It's why I wrote the op-ed I did today. You know, just I am explicitly. too. I'm very worried. Yeah. Because they could get away with this. And if they do, and they put Trump in power, they aren't going to be very happy about it themselves. Yeah. Because he's going to wreck our democracy, he's going to wreck our economy, and they will rue the day they ever heard his name, because he's a madman, and, and I know it, and most people know it. Who I knew it back in New York in the 80s. Yeah. He was crazy. Yeah. Well, I, my, my concern, Carol, is, you know, yeah, and, and none of us want to see Donald Trump back in the White House, but um, a, a larger concern is what if the Republican nominee in 2024, instead of being Donald Trump, is an actual competent Republican. Yeah, uh, like you know. Tom Cotton. Yeah, Tom Cotton, Ron DeSantis, uh, yeah. you know, Josh Hawley, uh, I mean, you know, a, a competent Republican who is also a neo-fascist and who actually understands what they're doing. Trump is just flailing around for his own self-interest and, and yeah. you know, and willing to use whatever comes along his way. Uh, you know, we're just, we're going to have to stay engaged. That's, that's the only thing I can think of. Carol, thank well, you for the call. I got to move along here. Rob in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I just wanted to know uh, your opinion on how things are going with this President Biden. Uh, I see a completely failed president, a completely failed economy where we're, inflation will be the name of the game. You want to know why companies aren't bringing in stock? Uh, look at the steel companies, for example. There's 13 in the U.S. Only six of them are up and running. And the reason why is because they don't know what the future holds. It has a lot more to do with Biden than anything. This guy's a madman. He's wrecking the economy. He's, Biden is a madman? He absolutely Seriously? is. And if you look at Afghanistan, what a failure. Look at the border. What uh, a failure. Rob, He's a complete Rob, the, you know, I'm so sorry to hear failure. you say these things. I mean, it, it, you He's realize that it was Donald Trump who failure. set up the withdrawal you know from what? Afghanistan and, and made it see. Okay, Rob, if you're going to try and talk, talk over me, I'll, I'll just dump the call. I mean, it's, it's, it's a waste of time. But let me just say, Joe Biden is no madman. And I, I just, how do you even respond to this? I, I find myself almost speechless to say that, you know, a decent guy like Joe Biden, who, who has had, you know, a lot of tragedy in his life. He, he's an empathetic, a genuinely empathetic person. I've met him. To say that he's a madman when you've got people on the right who are literally trying to destroy our republic, it's just breathtaking. To hear, to hear poor Rob, I mean, he's obviously been indoctrinated by these shills on, on right-wing media, and he's echoing these, these right-wing media talking points. And it's, it's like, I'm not even outraged. I'm sad.
of the tragedy that Rob has been, frankly, such a sucker. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thomas in Woodburn, Oregon. Hey, Thomas, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? Yeah, I was listening to you. I don't know what prompted me, but something came up about truth, and that made me think about, I was wondering why, if you knew why the Fairness Doctrine was done away with by uh, Reagan in 87. And it, it was, was done, uh, yeah, it was done away with, first of all, what the Fairness Doctrine did was two things. One, it required radio stations to do something that was called programming in the public interest, um, which typically meant that, um, and, and encouraged stations, didn't require encourage stations to have a, a diverse set of views in, in the public airwaves. But programming in the public interest was generally interpreted to be run public service announcements, you know, be, be part of the community. Have, and, and the main part of it was news, that you know, a local station would have local news at the top and the bottom of the hour to satisfy the requirements of the, of the Fairness Doctrine. I, I did local news in Lansing, Michigan from the late 60s to the mid-70s. Um, on a local station, and they had to do that to satisfy those requirements of the Fairness Doctrine. I'm guessing they no longer, you know, it's, that station is now owned by a giant chain, and they, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing there's not a single reporter there, um, number one. Number two, the second thing that the Fairness Doctrine said is, and, and keep in mind, this is, you know, pre-87, um, individual radio stations, individual television stations, we didn't have these giant... Uh, you know, like clear channel kind of things where you've got, you know, one company owning a thousand radio stations. Um, and that was because the law did not allow that. That law did not change until 1996 with the, with the Telecommunications Act of 96. So individual stations were owned typically by local families. 
in Lansing, you know, I worked at five different radio stations in Lansing. Every single one was owned by a local family or by, in the case of WITL, three guys, three just middle-class guys who got together, an engineer, a sales guy, and a radio guy. And so they would, just like a newspaper runs an editorial on their editorial pages and says, this is the opinion of the editorial board, radio stations and television stations, and, and I participated in this when I worked at WITL and also when I worked at WGIM-TV, um, they would have the owner of the station or a representative of the management of the station go on the air and say, uh, we're opposed to the bond issue that's going to fund the new you know, expansion of Potter Park. Uh, and what the Fairness Doctrine required was that when you speak as the owner or representing the owner, you must have a, uh, a person who's given the exact same amount of time who has a different point of view from you, you must give them free time to follow you. So, you'd, so we'd have you know, a two-minute editorial from the, from the owner of WJIM and then followed by a two-minute editorial from somebody from the local community who had a different opinion. There's no longer ownership of these stations, local ownership. They no longer do editorials. And, and uh, you know, so, you know, why, why Reagan nuked, nuked it in 87? I think it was inconvenient. It was a hassle. And they were looking toward media consolidation. It took them another eight years to get there. Um, but, uh, you know, and then, and then Barack Obama was the guy who took it off the books altogether. You know, just took it off the FCC completely so it would never come back again. I, we need something much more extensive than the Fairness Doctrine, Thomas, is the bottom line here. Thank you very much for the call. Jim in uh, Senia, Ohio. Hey, Jim, what's up? Well, I was wondering, uh, since the, if the Better Bill, uh, the House and the Senate had an better. agreement to pass the Build Back Better law and uh, the infrastructure bill, mm -hmm. and apparently the Senate is reneging on their side. So is the, is the House under any obligation to hold up their side of the bargain? And what I'm thinking about is, since Joe Manchin is so anti-entitlement, if the House were to amend that bill and remove all the entitlements from it and then send it back to the Senate... Uh, and say, okay, you, you screwed up the, the, the BBB bill, we'll give you the infrastructure back, and do you agree with it? I don't know what the entitlements are that are in there. I think that's well, just... Well, there's that, the, all the fossil fuel deals, all the anti-climate things. Oh, I see. Uh, those are entitlements, aren't they? Well, that, that's the problem. I mean, you know, this whole, even labeling Social Security and Medicare as entitlements, that, that was a slur that was promoted by right-wing think tanks back 40 years ago that they're continuing to use. Um, you know, all, I, I, Joe, Joe Manchin was just trolling us all with this. You know, that's what was going on. Jim, thanks for the call. Uh, Danita in Bremerton, Washington. Hey, Danita, what's up? What's up? Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for what you do. Um, yeah, I, I, another thing, Joe Manchin, not only is the environmental situation, his daughter is a CEO of Mylan. Right, and that was. came out She's, with a big, was, she, yeah, yeah, she was. So he still has connections to that. I'm sure gets paid off by the pharmaceutical companies for that stuff, because that was back in the EpiPen mm -hmm. um, situation that was brought out about his daughter. And I just kind of wanted to bring that to attention, too. So yeah, it's, it's a family dynasty. All kinds of people in it. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. it really is. Okay, thank you, Danita. All kinds of people in his pocket. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ken in uh, La Center, Washington. Hey, Ken, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm a plug for independent, progressive, listener-supported radio. Mm -hmm. Has anybody ever brought that up? 
Well, I'm all in favor of it. I, you know, we've, we're on a number of nonprofit stations. I'll, I'll record when they ask me to. I'm, I'm happy to record promos for them and fundraisers for them, and and uh, you know, and, yep. and, and encourage them. And uh, and it's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, we got a really good one. You know, I don't know if you listened to it. You talking about KBCS not, in Washington? But, uh, uh, no, in Portland. It's a oh, in Portland, KBCS yeah, X-ray FM. I do listen to X-ray FM. I'm on X-ray FM also. Yeah, they got. This, this, and it's a low-power FM station. Democracy Now. And yeah, they, and they do a great job. They do an absolutely great job. Ken, thank you very much for the call. Tom Harmon here with you. Let's do a deep dive with Conversations with Great Minds. Dr. Keisha N. Blaine is on the line with us, a historian and writer, columnist with MSNBC, associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh, president of the African-American Intellectual History Society, the 2022 New American National Fellow and Carr Center Fellow at Harvard University, and a member of the School of Social Science, the Institute for Advanced Studies, the author of two books, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, and a previous book, Set the World on Fire, and co-editor of 400 Souls, uh, edited with uh, Ibrahim Kendi, ex-Kendi, uh, Dr. Keisha Blaine. K-E-I-S-H-A-B-L-A-I-N is the Twitter handle, and uh, the website is Keisha Blaine also. Uh, dot com. Uh, Dr. Blaine, welcome back to the program. Uh, I, I, your, your book, Until I Am Free, Hammy, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, is absolutely extraordinary. The, the, I, I think you, you point out early in the book that most Americans know the high-profile civil rights leaders um, and, and black leaders of the last 50 years or so, whether it's uh, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or, or even Angela Davis, you know, mostly men but a few women. Um, but Fannie Lou Hamer is largely unknown. Tell us about, you know, A, why that might be, and B, uh, tell us about her. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on to talk about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, one of the things that I emphasize in the introduction, which, you know, when people ask me this question, why is it that it took so long for, for me to even learn about Hamer, uh, which I explained I didn't know about Hamer until uh, in my last year um, of college, even though I was majoring in history and Africana studies at the time. Uh, but one of the reasons that I always emphasize is that to this very day, the narratives that we often tell, the mainstream narratives that we often tell uh, about the civil rights movement tend to be male-dominated. Of course, uh, you know, so many great books have been written on black women's activism and, and focusing on their contributions to the movement. But, but by and large, we do still tend to emphasize the efforts of black men in the movement. And even more so, we tend to emphasize the political work and ideas of members of the black middle class and elite. Uh, as I put on the book, Hamer had a very different background. Hamer was a disabled black woman activist uh, from the state of Mississippi. She had a sixth grade education. Uh, you know, as you pointed out earlier, she did not know that she had the right to vote until age 44, when she joined uh, the civil rights movement in August 1962. Uh, and so I think that Hamer does not necessarily fit within the mold of what many people think about when they are, are talking about leadership in the context of the civil rights movement. She certainly um, had a, a unique background, but as I point out in the book, she left uh, such a powerful legacy, and, and I'm really hoping that this book helps to move the conversation forward in terms of acknowledging her contributions to the movement. Me too. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Keisha N. Blaine, whose uh, new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, is just brilliant. Um, do, do, Dr. Blaine, the, uh, I, I, we do uh, on 
we do a we record a six minute um, book report basically uh, that fills the space uh, on a couple of our on some of our non-commercial stations where our for-profit stations are doing news at the top of the hour and that kind of thing. So very few people of all of our listeners, only a very very small percentage of them actually heard that book report that I was reading. So uh, I think we could safely revisit that territory and 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 dig a little deeper into her. She she was the granddaughter of enslaved people. And 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 tell us about her life as a as a sharecropper. I think probably most Americans today don't even know what a share, what sharecropper means. Yeah, so sharecropping uh, is a system that ultimately replaced uh, slavery. Uh, and so, in in the southern context, once slavery was abolished with the passage of the Thirteenth Amendment in 1865, white landowners uh, introduced a system, um, you know, whereby many of the African-Americans who had been working on the plantation would be able to continue working. Uh, but, but in this particular context, they would work, uh, they would utilize tools that uh, they were loaning from the landowner, uh, they would uh, cultivate crops, and they would receive a share of the crops. So with the system of sharecropping, essentially, uh, black people remained in a system of dependency and debt. They didn't own the land, um, had little prospect to own the land, given the circumstances. Uh, and and it, it was ultimately, as I point out, a system that closely mirrored uh, institutional slavery. Uh, and so Hamer, uh, you know, was the youngest of 20 children, born into a sharecropping family. And as I point out in the book, she started uh, as a sharecropper, uh, believe it or not, at the age of six, when she was lured into uh, the practice of sharecropping when the white landowner, uh, you know, compelled her uh, to pick cotton and promised to give her, uh, you know, candy from, from the store. Wow. Uh, and so this was, you know, really, I mean, just remarkable when you, when you think about the lengths to which, um, you know, white, landers, white landowners would go uh, to exploit black labor and certainly did not mind exploiting the labor of a six-year-old in this context. And so this was a life that Hamer knew. Uh, it, it was certainly shaped by poverty, also by hunger uh, and exploitation. But she drew from these experiences uh, to ultimately bolster her political activism later in life. Yeah, I, 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 I just learned. I, mean, I, I think what, what you just said is that sharecropping is called sharecropping because the people are living on somebody else, living in somebody else's house, working on somebody else's land, and in exchange for that, they get a a small portion of the crop that they produce. Is that right? They get a share of the crop, and then they have to go out and sell it. Is that how it works? Right, but also, well, and then of course, keep in mind that they have to take care of themselves and their families, right? right. So even the share that they are receiving, they have to rely upon that to sustain themselves. Um, and, and oftentimes they're they're paying back uh, a fee for use of the tools, for example. Right. I mean, truly exploitative, yeah. uh, meant to keep you constantly relying on the white landowner. Yeah, it's the old I, I own my soul to the I owe my soul to the company store. This in this case, it's you, you're paying rent to that person or anything else. Um, so uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, in her uh, 40s, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, shows up for a SNCC meeting. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Tell us about that. Yeah, so in August 1962, at the time Hamer is 44 years old, uh, she attends this mass meeting. Uh, and this is uh, organized at a local church uh, in Ruville, Mississippi, uh, Hamer's hometown. 
Now, this is a meeting, as you point out, that was organized by activists in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. Uh, this is a group that, ta- that plays such a pivotal role in black voting rights uh, in the United States. Uh, it was grassroots. Uh, it was student-led. In fact, many of the leaders of the movement were college age at the time. And so Hamer attended this meeting, and it was really uh, both a spiritual and political awakening. As I explained in the book, she came to understand that not only she could play a key role in the expansion of black political rights uh, through the knowledge uh, that she obtained, uh, you know, understanding that she could vote as a citizen of the United States, but she also came to view um, her spiritual calling as tied to that political work. Um, and she began to, uh, I mean, she, she immediately joined the movement. She became a field organizer for SNCC, and she thrust her, her whole life into it. In fact, from uh, August 1962 uh, until March uh, of 77, when she passed away, Hamer remained involved in the movement. Uh, and, and I just think that particular um, meeting was uh, the beginning of, of something truly remarkable. I mean, we now know about um, Fannie Lou Hamer often through the context of the 1964 Democratic National Convention, but it's two years later uh, that she uh, had joined the movement and decided to commit herself to expanding black voting rights. Yeah, and she did a, an absolutely remarkable job. She was an extraordinary speaker, and yes, she spoke at that, at that Democratic National Convention, and that kind of catapulted her onto the national stage. We're talking with Dr. Keisha N. Blaine, her new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dr. Blaine, you, you talk in the book uh, about the impact that Fannie Lou Hamer's story had on you and, and your hopes for the impact that it will have on, on other, other young people, other people who are uh, concerned about rights, civil rights in the United States. Uh, can you speak to that? Yes, I think one of the challenges when we talk about the civil rights movement, and I find this when I teach courses on this topic in particular, you know, when we focus on um, so many of the figures we tend to talk about, such as Martin Luther King Jr., uh, you know, such as John Lewis, Angela Davis, and so many others, uh, I think there, there's often a feeling, you know, and this is you know, among my students in particular, whereby these individuals are so extraordinary, and, and they are, they truly are extraordinary, but, but the notion is that they are so extraordinary, and sometimes the interpretation is that they are so far removed uh, from our, you know, our everyday experiences. Um, and, and also the interpretation is that, um, you know, how, how in the world could, you know, could I contribute or could, could my, the person sitting next to me contribute because, um, you know, we are not, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or Angela Davis. I mean, I think what, what is so crucial about Stanley Lehmer's story is that it gets all of us to see how an ordinary person Right, an ordinary person with limited financial resources, someone with a sixth grade education, someone who was disabled, who grew up in poverty, uh, you know, from uh, the South, could ultimately shape national politics in such a meaningful way. Um, and, and, and certainly there are aspects of Hamer's story that we can talk about as extraordinary and remarkable. But I think the, the message here is really trying to figure out how all of us can tap into our leadership potential uh, in whatever context it may be, whether it's, you know, within our communities, uh, you know, whether it is on a national level. Uh, and, and so I think it's the kind of story that, that I hope people find inspiring 
but more so that it gets them to think, okay, what can I do? You know, what, what, what tools do I have? What resources do I have? What skills do I have that I may be able to use in the interest of making this world a better place? And that's partly, you know, why Hamer uh, shaped my life the way that she did in encountering her you know, as a college student, uh, as someone from a working class background, as someone who uh, felt so out of place as a first generation college student, for example. You know, I think it was reading Hamer's story that, that compelled me to imagine the possibilities of how I too can make a difference in this case, using my writing, using my research. We have about 45 seconds until we're going to hit a, a real quick break here. Um, how did you first encounter her, her in history? Taking a class um, in college uh, in the spring of 2008, mm -hmm. uh, reading about her, um, and actually in the, at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. You saw the video or the, the tape of her, her speech? The clips. Yes, the clips yeah. of her speech, uh, which certainly circulated and still circulate widely, but more to the point, reading the transcript of, of her powerful words. Did she write that speech, or was it, is it, was it just you know, off the top of her head for working from bullet points kind of thing? Yes, um, and the truth is, Hamer had given um, parts and pieces of that speech uh, leading up to that moment, so she often would, would repeat, mm -hmm. uh, but it was impromptu. That's, that's extraordinary. We're talking with Keisha and Blaine, Dr. Keisha Blaine, whose new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, is a great read. You really want to check this. It's an inspiring read. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We are talking with Dr. Keisha Blaine about her new book, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. It's our Conversations with Great Minds um, uh, segment of uh, whatever you, you know, a, a program, I guess. And uh, we have two great minds here that, that are the subject of this, Dr. Blaine herself and, uh, of course, Fannie Lou Hamer. It's just extraordinary work. Um, Dr. Blaine, one of the chapters in your, in your book is titled uh, Words to the Effect of, uh, actually, let me just 
the special plight of black women. Uh, can you speak to that? Yes, one of the things that's so um, powerful about Hamer's story uh, is thinking through the way that her ideas about women's empowerment helped to shape um, the women's liberation movement. And as I point out in the book, Hamer did not self-identify as a feminist. She certainly never called herself a feminist. But what is clear is that she uh, really helped to shape the movement by emphasizing exactly that, the special plight of black women. Uh, so, for example, you know, she, uh, in collaborating with a number of activists um, in the National Women's Political Caucus, a group that she helped to establish in 1971, she spoke uh, particularly about the experiences of black women because she wanted uh, white liberal feminists uh, to understand in particular that even though they were right to talk about sexism and they were absolutely right to talk about patriarchy and the importance of dis dismantling these kinds of perspectives, she wanted them to also have um, not only a class analysis, uh, but, 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 uh, but ultimately adopt a racial lens. So she wanted them to talk about racism and white supremacy. She also wanted them to, to confront classism. And here's where we can see uh, through Hamer's words and ideas uh, what we later described through the, you know, through the writings of Kimberly Crenshaw as intersectionality. And so I talk about Hamer as one of the foremothers of intersectionality and in getting us to think through the intersecting um, systems of oppression, the intersecting forces that shape uh, individual lives. In this, in this particular context, Hamer wanted to shed the light on black women's unique experiences in, in the United States. It's, it's often uh, occurred to me that, and, and I'm, I'm sure that this is not any kind of an original thought, that for white people in the United States for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, race was a lazy person's way of enforcing class. Um, does that make sense to you? Can you speak to that? Well, I was about to say, can you uh, elaborate more on that? Sure. Um, if you, you know, uh, 300 years ago or, or last year, if uh, a white person who had power and privilege in society was essentially enforcing class, uh, you know, with, let's consolidate all the wealth here, let's consolidate all the power here. Right. Um, you could do it, you know, maybe in West Virginia, uh, you know, in a wh all white community, you could do it just based on, you know, who, who was born with the money, who's got the land kind of thing. But mm -hmm. it, it, when it's white people coming in, you know, interacting with black people, then that from the point of view of essentially white supremacists and white racists has historically been an instant label of class in as much as black people are deprived of power and authority and agency. And I'm, I'm sure I'm mangling this, this description. This is not, you know, my field. Yeah. But, um, can you speak to that? Well, we, but I think, well, I think one of the things that's so important for Hamer's analysis was how we need to understand that it's, it's impossible to disentangle exactly. um, these things, right? So, so you can talk about class, um, and you must talk about class. But if you talk about class without any kind of racial analysis, then um, in the end, you, you ultimately overlook the experiences um, of millions of people I mean, in the context of the U.S., uh, but also what you do is that you don't grapple with the legacies of slavery, um, uh, and certainly on a global lens, then you're not grappling with the legacies of colonialism. Uh, and, and there's a way that you're able to push aside 
um, you know, not only white supremacy, but put aside these institutional, um, you know, institutional racism. You, you know, mm-hmm. you, you push aside structural racism, right? Um, and, and you don't grapple with how um, for decades, for centuries, there are these systems uh, that have uh, historically excluded um, some groups uh, from all aspects of American society. So, so I think Hamer's point is that, which is similar to you know the, the point that I think uh, legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw is making with this notion of intersectionality, is that is that we cannot disentangle all of these um, systems of oppression. We have to talk about them collectively because our life experiences reveal how much they are all connected. And it's not just race; it's also gender. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and 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 certainly sexuality, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and then we can talk about ability, uh, you know, so just so, so many different aspects that I think um, Hamer's story helps us see the power of, of, of taking this multidimensional approach, I think is perhaps the best way to explain it. Yeah, it's an extraordinary book. I, 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 uh, I was inspiring reading it. Keisha Blaine, uh, Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Dr. Blaine, thank you so much for dropping by to talk with us today about your book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's an honor. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America by Keisha N. Blaine. And this is from the introduction, which is titled A Long Fight Ahead. I still remember the very first time I heard about Fannie Lou Hamer. I was in, it was the spring of 2008 when I was a senior at Binghamton University, and I was taking a course on the American Civil Rights Movement. The professor had assigned readings on Hamer, including interviews and a speech Hamer delivered in the 1960s. I was blown away by what I read, and I couldn't help wondering why it had taken me so long to encounter this fearless and extraordinary black woman. The more I learned about Hamer's life and her political vision, however, it became clear to me that she hadn't received the same level of attention and acclaim as so many others. She didn't reflect the public's memory of the civil rights movement. Mainstream historical narratives on black social movements then and now privilege the idea and political activities of men. Most Americans connect the civil rights movement and black power era with black men, such as Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, Malcolm X, to name a few. And when black women leaders enter the conversation, the focus tends to be on the same prominent figures such as Rosa Parks, Coretta Scott King, and Angela Davis. Needless to say, these trailblazing leaders have all fundamentally shaped American society. Their works and lives should be deeply studied. However, the historical record is far richer and more interesting than many realize, including a diverse array of activists and leaders from different classes in all walks of life. Fannie Lou Hamer's story captures the contributions of a black woman sharecropper with limited formal education and limited material resources, but an all-consuming passion for social justice. Born in Mississippi on October 6, 1917, Hamer was the youngest of 20 children. The granddaughter of enslaved people, Hamer worked as a sharecropper for much of her life, a brutal practice closely mirroring the rhythms of slavery in the United States. From sunup to sundown, Hamer and her family cultivated cotton on a local plantation, expanding the fortunes of the white landowners as the Hamer family sank deeper and deeper into debt. At the tender age of 12, she concluded her studies at a local schoolhouse, 
so she could help her family meet their growing financial pressures. Still, they remain trapped in poverty, the result of the exploitative nature of the sharecropping system and the violence used to maintain it. The difficulties of Hamer's childhood extended well into adulthood when she struggled to make ends meet. Despite her limited material resources and the various challenges she endured as a black woman living in poverty in Mississippi, Hamer committed herself to making a difference in the lives of others. Her life changed dramatically in 1962. At age 44, she attended a mass meeting at a local church in Sunflower County, Mississippi, organized by activists with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, SNCC, an interracial civil rights organization. The meeting started her on the path to becoming a voting rights activist. Deeply moved by the words of the young SNCC activists that evening, Hamer learned of her constitutional rights as a citizen of the United States. She later said it was the first time she learned that she had a right to vote. That year, Hamer became a field secretary for SNCC and worked with us to assist black residents in Mississippi with voter registration. Activists in SNCC later praised Hamer for the role she played in amplifying their work and keeping them focused on accomplishing their goals. As for the SNCC part of her continuing movement life, she kept us on track, members of the SNCC uh, Legacy Project noted. It was not difficult for a group of young people like we were then to sometimes stumble off course. She kept us focused on doing what was right. She commanded our respect as well as our love. When she joined the civil rights movement in 1962, Hamer decided to dedicate her time and talents to the betterment of black people and other marginalized groups. In the years to follow, she launched a number of initiatives aimed at expanding voting rights as well as addressing racism and inequality in her community and across the nation. Working alongside SNCC activists, Hamer spearheaded voter education workshops in the South, facilitated voter registration drives, and participated in marches and sit-ins throughout the region. Her efforts to expand voting rights for black people in the South drew the ire of many, especially local white supremacists who attempted to impede her political work at every turn. From the moment she joined the civil rights movement, Hamer became a target of violence, harassment, and intimidation. By extension, her loved ones also became the targets of local law enforcement. In one instance, Hamer's husband, Perry Papp, was arrested and jailed. Local police also targeted one of Hamer's daughters, who was arrested in 1963. Hamer was also harassed for a water bill in the amount of $9,000 even though the Hamers had no running water at the time. And on one occasion, local police officers barged into her home, all the way into her and Pap's bedroom, in the wee hours of the morning, waving guns and flashlights, with a litany of questions about her personal activities. These incidents went beyond intimidation when Hamer endured a brutal beating in Winona, Winona Mississippi in 1963. In June of that year, she was traveling back home with fellow activists after attending a voters workshop in South Carolina. The book is Until I Am Free by Keisha N. Blaine, Fannie Lou Hamer's enduring message to America. Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you. And, uh, you know, back to all of our, our news here. Uh, well, actually, Dan in Longview, Washington, you wanted to, to speak about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and sharecropping? Yeah, I would just like to tell you a little story my mother told me. She was uh, from South Carolina. She's about 88 years old. When she was a young girl, she told me about 
she first off, I want to say she coined a phrase, and it's brilliant. She said, Abe Lincoln freed the slaves, but he never did a damn thing for the sharecroppers. Hmm. And I thought it was beautiful. But anyway, because uh, there were a lot of you mean, like, in the context of there were a lot of white sharecroppers who were exploited, obviously not as badly as slaves, but also, you know, yeah. on, the, on the bottom end of the barrel, as it were. Yes, exactly. They were down there thought of, and this was a horrible thing to say, but with the blacks, I don't, I, uh, they were thought of at that level, the sharecroppers. Um, so my mother was 14 years old. She had like $4 saved. Her little sister fell, broke her arm. Grandma and grandpa did not have $1 to their name. They took my mother's money and the other kids' money to take the younger sister to the doctor. Uh, and they never paid her back. They never said thank you. And again, you know, that's from no education, ignorance, uh, uh, extreme Southern Baptist roots. Another little incident, my mom was in the sixth grade, and my mom is still brilliant, by the way, and she won a spelling bee. And her teacher bought her a dress. And to this day, my mother's never wore it. It's in her chest because she's so proud of that thing. And, uh, and I mean, just think of the heartbreak that that puts on a person for the rest of their life. Yeah. And uh, there's so many other stories. Uh, my mother quit school in the eighth grade. And I asked her, I said, Mom, why did you quit school in the eighth grade? She said, well, she said, I had an old dress. It was so threadbare you could see through it. She said, my shoes didn't fit. My feet were sticking out of them. They were busted out, as she says. And uh, and she said, besides that, Daddy wanted me to stay home and just take care of the younger kids. And and he didn't care about education. And, and I mean, the life of the sharecropper was absolutely heartbreaking, Tom. Yeah. I just cannot really put it into words. And, and we left this deep south, by the way, when I was... Uh, very young, and it's the best thing I feel my folks did because they got away from the oppression. My dad got a good mill working job, uh, and uh, it was just uh, and 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 now we go back to the south and visit, and it helped me understand my mother and father so much more. My mom got married at age fifteen, and like she said, it, you know, to get to it's the way out. Uh, she, yeah, get get, yeah. get, a, get, yeah. get out of the oppression. Yeah, when I was when I was researching um, the hidden history of American oligarchy, you know, about a third of that book is about how the South uh, turned from uh, what was arguably a democracy into an oligarchic form of government, and uh, you know, this whole invention of whiteness in the modern sense uh, that happened in the 1600s in Virginia was part of their efforts to split poor whites from poor blacks because they had been forming alliances and uh, and and that was pretty intolerable and and the fact that you know the plantation owners and and the and the there was about a thousand wealthy families in the south who basically controlled all of the south and who drove the yes. process toward the civil war and yeah they they held slaves black people as slaves but they also held white you know the poor white people now, i shouldn't say also because i don't i really don't want to compare this to slavery because slavery was such an existential horror that said yes. there was breathtaking poverty for the americas 
and uh, among the sharecrop the white sharecroppers in the south who were theoretically free but they really weren't free and it was it, it was just you know the the longer they they worked the more in debt they went dan i gotta move along but thank you for the call and thank you for sharing that story it's an amazing one eris in chicago hey eris what's on your mind today Yes, Tom, thanks again for your hospitality and uh, allowing me to express my opinions. Uh, a few minutes ago, I'm sorry I was out, and I came in, I caught a few words about fascism. Somebody was talking about uh, about 10 minutes ago, and I'd like to contribute something on fascism because uh, I'm 83 years old now, but years ago, 50, 60 years ago, there was a famous book, uh, friendly fascism. Mm -hmm. I forgot. I wish I had read it, but I'm going to go back to the Chicago Public Library and try to find it. And I have uh, observing now for decades after uh, graduating college that fascism is an instrument or an agency or an aspect of uh, capitalism. And in a few, 25 words or less, uh, capitalism, uh, the capitalists. Uh, rule arbitrarily, but with a velvet glove, and the, that's velvet glove control of society. But then when they uh, find some reason, like to overthrow Allende in Chile, they use the iron fist. Right. So, in fact, the, the old slogan was the, the, the velvet glove over the iron fist. They are 75 million people but they have like two, three hundred million guns. And so these people, they discard the velvet glove and they believe in ruling with the iron fist. Yeah, yeah, well said. And, you know, case in point, not just Pinochet, but, uh, you know, what happened in Spain with Franco. I mean, you can just go on and on. Whew, what a day, huh? Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm, you know, I got my booster shot yesterday. And my arm doesn't even hurt anymore. These are, these are no big deal. Get yourself vaccinated. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. So get out there, get active, and make sure everybody you know is registered to vote. There's big times coming. Big turning points for this country. Dag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.